opportunity here as he comes to bring the work. Good morning. Am I on? Oh, yes. Good morning. I was really hoping Dave would say the science teacher by day, Batman by night, but I'm not quite there yet. Jesus is Lord. It's nice to hear at least 25% of you believe that. Jesus is Lord. That phrase would have got you into trouble in the first century if you lived in the Roman Empire. It might have got you ridiculed. It might have got you stoned or People just throw stones at you. Or maybe worse, you may have been killed for it in all manner of gruesome ways. The phrase Jesus is Lord was adapted from a popular saying among Romans at the time, which was Caesar is Lord. And in taking that phrase for themselves, Christians were elevating Jesus, rightly so, as their sovereign above Caesar. You were proclaiming a kingdom that was greater than that of the Roman Empire and one which had more authority. In Acts 17.6, Jason and other Christians are accused of turning the world upside down, and that is precisely what the kingdom of God is. It's an upside down of the Roman Empire or any other worldly institution that seeks to oppose God. Caesar's kingdom was based on a power-down model, which used force, coercion, and social pressure to ensure conformity. Jesus' kingdom by contrast, uses, we'll call it, a power-under system, which is based on the example of love, service, and self-sacrifice. So Christians refused to profess Caesar as their Lord, taking Jesus as their Lord instead, which, by the way, is a very good move if you haven't done so yet. Um, But Christians were punished for that, notably under Nero, Emperor Nero, from AD 64 onwards. And he blamed, at the time, the already unpopular Christians for a fire of Rome, which, some argue, he started himself. In some situations, Christians were even burned alive in oil and put upon pikes as human candles. Praise God that we do have that freedom and that doesn't happen to us today. But it's around this time that Peter, John, and Jude write their letters And they write them to all manner of believers. Some of them are letters to to churches. Some of them are letters to individuals. Everyone at this time who professed the name of Jesus was in danger of being martyred. Church leaders included and, and apostles as well. So, um... I just want to uh, show you a slide, first of all, which, um, which covers some of the themes, because I won't be going through these books um, verse by verse, otherwise we'd be here for uh, a very um, long time. So um, Peter wrote two books, and um, the, the first one, uh, the main theme of that is, is suffering, and that's going to be something which I'm going to cover. His second book covers um, the knowledge of God, the importance of, of having that. John writes three books. The first is significantly longer than the other two, and he wants to to assure his readers of a certainty of faith um, during that period of time of persecution. And in the other two books, which are written to individuals rather than churches, he tells um, the the readers there to uh, walk in love and obedience and protect the truth. Um, And then finally, we have uh, Jude. Now, you'll have heard of Peter and John if you've read any of the Bible, probably, uh, being two of the the closest disciples uh, of Jesus. Um, Jude, um, well, I I was surprised when I read this. Jude, um, like James, is actually brother of Jesus. I mean, like, 
you know, biological brother. He was the he was the, he was a son of Mary uh, and and Joseph. And he writes um, a book here where he tells us to contend for the faith. But I'm not going to go through each one um, one at a time. What I'm going to do is pick up the main themes and and draw those um, and draw those together. So the themes that um, we're going to look at are I think that's on the next slide. The themes that we're going to look at are. These so challenges facing Christians at the uh, at the time, um, suffering for being a, a Christian, and also false teaching was creeping into the church. And then their response that the, the, the Peter, John, and Jude give to that the appropriate response, which is to have a certainty of uh, faith and to engage in holy living. So uh, let's mention Peter first. P- Peter probably wrote his first book around, around AD 63-64 in the lead up to uh, persecution of Christians under Nero. And before that he travelled um, extensively. So he's writing to people in what we would call now modern day Turkey. He um, addresses them as exiles uh, in the um, uh, exiles in the dispersion. It says that in, in one of the first verses uh, in 1 Peter. Uh, meaning uh, exiles in the dispersion, meaning strangers uh, of this world, aliens, citizens of heaven, born from above, sent into the world to make Jesus known, people like us. So it's to these that he writes, and he puts this at the end of his book. Um, So if you look at 1 Peter 5 verse 10, I've chosen this passage because I think it summarizes um, his writing well. And it says, 1 Peter 5 verse 10, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. He reminds his readers that they're called to an eternal glory, a life that will never end. And what a life. Better than we can ever imagine. But before that, there'll be some suffering Jesus makes this clear when he speaks in John 13:66 where it says in this world you will have trouble but take heart i have overcome the world Peter reminds reminds us uh, in his book that there is the grace of god in our troubles and that um and that is promised to us, uh, no matter the trial, is that we will be strong, we'll be firm and steadfast and by the grace of god we will not be moved like a house built on a rock the rock our foundation which is the person of Jesus Christ. Peter agrees that suffering as Christians is inevitable. It's going to happen, but it will be fleeting. It will be short in duration. In his first book, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, he mentions that we face trials for a little while, though the purpose of these is to refine us, to, rep- to prove our, that our faith is true and to result in glory to God. Uh, and that goes up to um, to verse eight in that first chapter. So this imagery of of, of of like testing by fire, of proving that our faith is real, uh, comes from and it needs to get a bit of science in. So here it is. Uh, it's from the practice of uh, assaying metal ore. That is heat, heating um, a mineral which contains metal to check its chemical composition, uh, to check uh, how much of that was actually precious, whether the rest of that area was worth uh, mining. So you would heat it in fire and only the precious metals such as gold would um, would survive that process um, the rest of it the impurities the unwanted bits um, they would be burnt off leaving only the precious metal behind and Peter states that our genuine faith is even more precious than gold and these trials that we go through with the fire 
which are to test to us, not to prove to God, but I mean, he knows anyway, but to, to prove to ourselves as well what is good and what is not. In the following verses, Peter emphasizes how happy we are to be Christians. And he says in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, that's Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Despite trials and sufferings, there is nothing the world can offer which is better than knowing our Lord Jesus. But if we are to suffer, it needs to be for the right reasons. Peter makes it clear that we should avoid suffering for doing wrong. If you look at chapter 4 in 1 Peter, and from verse 14, it says this, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Earlier in the chapter, Peter mentions that the world will be surprised when we do not engage in their debauchery, in their selfish living. And it mentions examples such as sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. These things are not for us. And because we choose not to do them, we are maligned by the world, ridiculed. But in this we are blessed. Because in taking a stand on holy living, we are proclaiming the gospel to them. And this is why Jesus came, and this is why he sent us. That sinners might be saved through our example. Peter picks up popular uh, imagery. Um, I say that because it it, is one of the the most commonly quoted um, verses. That we are a priesthood, a holy nation. We are representatives of God to the world. By our holy living. Peter then never disguises the fact that we might suffer, but he encourages us to use it as an opportunity to make Jesus famous. Yes, at the time, there was not just pressure from the world putting it onto the church, but there was pressure from inside the church as well, which was making life for Christians difficult. In his second letter, Peter warns his readers about false teachers and false shepherds who he expects to rise up. That is, people who have the appearance of godly leaders, but instead have evil and selfish motives, which do not lead to the kingdom advancing and do not lead to Jesus' name being glorified. Quite the opposite, in fact. He says at the end of 2 Peter, in in, uh, chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So, these people he mentions... The error of lawless uh, people. We could say, well, are they not people from the world? Well, actually, if we look back in the book, we see that he goes to great lengths to mention about people who have crept into the church who are spreading lies. Um, The aim of this book, which was written probably not too long before his death, um, and there's one verse that makes that clear, although I forget which it is now. You should read the book and find it out. I'm not doing all the work for you. Um, So he... um, he, said, he aims to equip his readers with the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of God is the main theme of, of this book, which, um, which is important because it stands in contrast to the lies of the false teachers we, which he expects um, to come. 
He says that having uh, knowledge of God is essential and it supplies um, the, uh, the following. In 2 Peter, I'm reading all these verses are from chapter 1 in verse 3. Here he says that everything, it's everything that we need for a godly life, the knowledge of God. In chapter 4, he says uh, that we have participation in the divine nature, which is a really deep thing. And I wanted to go into lots of depth about, but I don't have time, unfortunately, this morning. Maybe that's for another time. Um, but also in verse 8, um, that we might live effective and productive lives. And uh, verse 10, it's a guarantee to us that if we stay in Jesus, we will never fall. Peter proves his certainty of this knowledge of God. He heard it himself. He heard God speak himself on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is mentioned in, um, in, in most of the Gospels. Um, he heard the voice of God. And um, so, uh, therefore, he can, he can testify of the, the, the knowledge of God, that he, he knows his stuff. He spent time with Jesus, and he reminds us of the, tes- uh, the, uh, the testimony of the Old Testament prophets um, also. And, um, but then he uses that to link it in the next chapter, in chapter 2, to false teachers who bring the way into disrepute. And in verse 2... He says um, that they are like that false teachers are like the false prophets of the Old Testament, and then he goes back and gives examples of what those um, were like. He teaches us how to recognize such people. So in verse uh, two, he says that they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, and that will, they will deny the sovereign Lord. In verse three, he says they have depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. They are greedy; they will exploit you with fabricated stories, but. Their condemnation has been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Read the rest of that chapter and take some comfort that God will judge those who lead his people astray. It's interesting how in all these letters the gravest judgment is for such people more than the judgment that is spoken about for, for, for unbelievers who, who don't yet know Jesus. Um, the more grave punishment is for those who have known God and then turn their backs on him and try to lead people astray. It's pretty grim language, actually, uh, if you read it. Um, and, and, and among other things, Peter says this in uh, chapter 2, verse 21. He says it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It would have been better to have never known him Wow. And I thought it was bad enough not to know him. So if Peter writes that, I think that's, that's something sobering which we should take on board. Interestingly, the rather short book of Jude also has much to say about false teachers. In fact, Jude um, is, all, is, is quite often compared with this book to Peter because of the warning of the rise of false teachers. Some scholars debate wh- which came first, which was used as a source. Did Jude use 2, two Peter as a source, or did 2 Peter use uh, Jude as a source? I ultimately don't think it's, it's, it's something we should, we should worry about. But um, it, it seems like Peter actually wrote earlier because Peter talks about false teachers being on their way, whereas Jude speaks about they've already arrived. In fact, this makes Jude a very urgent letter. If you look at, if you turn to Jude, so skip past John, we'll come back to him. We haven't left him out. Um, 
he says that in verse three that he would have rather written to his readers about the salvation that we share. But instead, he's forced to write about the false teachers who have slipped into their midst. Such was the plague of false teachers. Such was the cancer in the church that he had to change his agenda entirely when writing to these people. And that is now scripture. So Jude had one idea. But God, by the Holy Spirit, prompted him to address this issue. And then this is now scripture to us, but because of the false teachers. Um, and uh, if, you, if you keep reading from uh, uh, that, that bit of Jude, he, he makes it clear that these people have, uh, have caused divisions in some way. So another way to recognize people... Um, who, are, who are going to be um, spreading lies in the church, that ultimately their work does not lead to community. It doesn't lead to family. In fact, it leads to the opposite. It leads to, div- leads to divisions. And that's something we need to watch out for and check ourselves on as well. It's at this time I want to mention, um, I want to just go off on a side and mention a movie that I'm particularly fond of from several years ago. Uh, anyone seen the movie Inception? Anyone fallen asleep in it? Because it is about sleep. I try and show it to Mel, but she falls asleep in movies all the time. But there is one particular... Um, it's, uh, briefly, what it's about, without spoiling it, is it, uh, it's about um, breaking into people's minds, going into their dreams, and either taking ideas or planting ideas. Um, it sounds like a pretty grim thing, but it's quite an entertaining movie. I, I do recommend that you uh, watch it. But there's one quote which really stuck out for me here. The main character, Cobb, says this. He says, an idea is like a virus, resilient, highly contagious. Even the smallest seed of an idea can grow. It can grow to define us or it can destroy us. What are we going to let that seed be? Are we going to let it be the truth, the knowledge of God, which Peter talks about? Or are we going to let it be the lies of the enemy that come through false teachers who have false motives? I think we all know the answer to that question, don't we? So get into the word of God. Um, Jude says this in uh, verses 17 and 21. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Jude's answer, his remedy to this virus, of this, this cancer of false teachers is simple. Build yourselves up. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Verse 3 In his book, he says, contend for the faith. Fight for it. Fight for what you have. Fight for this thing that is more precious than gold that Jesus Christ bought for us with his own blood. Take action that will increase your faith. Speak the truth to yourself. When you read in the word, speak it aloud to yourself. And when you hear it, it will build faith in your heart. Dwell in the love of Jesus. Don't just have a head knowledge about it. Get yourself under the love of Jesus. Of Jesus, talk to him. He's a person. He's real. He listens to you. Surround yourself with the with people of faith, and in doing so, you will repel the lies of the enemy that come through false teachers. Moreover, make it your habit to pray in the Spirit, as Jude teaches us. 
Okay, I said we'd skip over John. We'll go back to him now. He also writes about some heresies uh, rising in the church. And um, he probably wrote his books a decade or two later than Peter or Jude when he was the last surviving um, apostle. You will recognize the language of uh, John's letters as reminiscent of his gospel. And in fact, the, his first book, uh, his first letter does actually start like his gospel a little bit. And so it's very clear, it's, it's obvious, probably more than, in, in my opinion, more than any other book in the Bible, that he wrote those and he wrote these letters. Um, You'll, you'll recognize it if you've, if you've read uh, John. He addresses his readers as, um, as little children, which is indicative of his, uh, his pastoral love and his tenderness for them. John's love is clear because he says at the end of his second and his third letters, um, which are both, both personal letters to individuals or small groups rather than to, to whole church communities. He said that he would rather talk to them face to face. He's got a lot to say, but he doesn't have time, so he would rather talk to them face to face. Um, actually, I'll just, just read out what he says at the end of 3 John. It's, it's more or less the same as 2 John. It says in verse 13 of 3 John, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. I'd just like to do a paraphrase of that. I have much to write to you, but I would rather not send you a text message. But I would rather not send you a WhatsApp message. But I'd rather not write on your wall on Facebook. I would rather see you face to face. And this is the heart of John. And I think we can learn something um, from that. John was also aware, because he calls his readers uh, little children, that his audience had the tendency, like young children, to believe anything that is said to them, whether that be the truth or be it a lie which comes through a false teacher. So his main reason for writing is that his readers may have a certainty of faith. And the lie that he is writing against most of all is called Gnosticism, which you may have heard of. I don't think it's something which really takes uh, which is really around today, but Gnosticism was essentially this. It was a belief system which held that everything material was evil, was bad, and that everything um, spiritual was good. And so they were total opposite to each other. So they went so as far to say that the material body that we live in now is inherently evil. So therefore, when Christians um, start proclaiming the gospel to them and say that God was, um, God was made flesh, they were like, no, that can't be. That can't be because you can't have someone who is spiritual and perfect in the body of something which is evil. And so um, people who followed Gnosticism would then come into churches and they would say that Jesus was either a ghost or he was a man of split personality who was sometimes who he says he was and sometimes was, 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 t- was totally evil or something like that, regardless of what they said. It wasn't the gospel, and the gospel itself was compromised. And so John writes to combat this. He says this um, towards the end of his letter in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. His book is deep. You should meditate on it if you've got some time. Well, make the time for it. Uh, He makes it clear that Jesus was real. After all, he spent years with Jesus. He was close to Jesus throughout his years of ministry. And he even says in the book of John that he leant his head on Jesus' chest during the Last Supper. John affirms that Christ was tangible 
audible, visible, that he himself was witness to that fact. He clearly explains that Jesus was no ghost. John says that we can be sure of our faith if we walk in the light. If we love God and obey his commandments. And it says that in 1 John 1 verses 6 and 7. He then goes on to say that if we do not do these things, if we do not um, if we do not love God and obey his commandments, then, uh, then we're deceiving ourselves. Um, we expect people who call themselves Christians to love God, to obey commandments, and to, um, and to love their brothers and sisters. So that's another way of recognizing people who may be false teachers. But this isn't to say that if we mess up, if we sin, that we completely mess up, that that is the end of it for us. Because John says in uh, verse 9 of chapter 1, um, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God for his grace. But this is not an excuse to sin. John is not giving a license. And this is what some of the false teachers were saying. They were saying, it's okay. Paul writes against it as well, doesn't he? Um, he says, uh, they were saying, it's okay for a little bit of sin because Jesus will forgive you. That is not the gospel. That is not what we believe. That is in direct opposition to what the Bible teaches. Um, Jude writes, John actually just uh, does say in, the, um, in verse 10, I don't think, I think I just alluded to it, but I'll read it. It says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word uh, is not in us. Actually, I don't think that backs up what I said. But um, Jude does. Um, he says in verse 4, uh, his book, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. And godly people who pervert the grace of God, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Deliberately sinning then is grouped here with denying the Lord Jesus we need to be aware of it and avoid it because we are not such people. We're not, are we? We're not those people. And while we're on the subject of Jude and the subject of having certainty of faith, he mentions something else pertinent. At the end of, uh, towards the end of his book, in verse 22 and 23, he says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Now we may think, well, I've been part of King's Church for years now. I am a solid rock in my faith. I arrive early on a Sunday. I stay for fellowship afterwards. I'm part of a connect group. I listen to the preaches online again afterwards. I even listen to the preaches from the other sites which I don't go to. I know my stuff. In fact, you could call me Dr. Doctrine, thanks. Um, but what about your brother and sister? Do they do those things? They should. They're all really good habits to get into. They're good ways of building yourself up like Jude encouraged us to do. But if perhaps they don't, perhaps because they're a young Christian or perhaps because they, they live alone or, or something similar, that they are in danger of believing a lie. What does Jude say? He says, have mercy on them, just as God has mercy on us. Because you see, let's be honest, we do doubt from time to time, don't we? Even Peter, John, and the other apostles, when they were with Jesus, they doubted. Because Jesus kept telling them to have faith. But when they doubted, Jesus didn't, didn't write them off. He rebuked them. He encouraged them. They moved on, and they went on to do amazing things. Because they kept walking with Jesus. What we need to ask ourselves is, 
Are we looking out for our brother and sister? Are we in a position spiritually? Are we, do we have the strength that if they stumble, we'll be there to pick them up. We'll be ready to do that. I think it's very important because let's face it, we are our brother's keeper. Back to John then. He says in the last chapter of his first book, these verses in 1 John 5, 18 to 20. Um, he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Notice how he keeps repeating, we know, we know, we know. We know God, don't we? We know the certainty of the faith that we have. There's lies coming, but we don't believe them. We know the truth, the truth of the word, the word that Jesus gave us. If anything, then, is the hallmark of true faith, it is, as I've been saying, obedience and a holy life, which leads us on to our last section about holy living, which all of these authors talk about to some extent. John continues to make his point in his second book. He encourages the act of walking in love and obedience and commending his readers, um, his readers who are called the elect lady and her children. He encourages them in, um, in, in living a life, in walking in love and obedience and in teaching this to others. John was so passionate about this, that, that he, about this fact, about people walking in truth and in love and obedience, that he wrote a personal letter. That's what 2 John is, and that's what 3 John is as well. These are personal letters, which I've already mentioned. Um, but Peter has much to say on this also. Um, for example, so if you skim back to 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, 13 and 16... It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is holy, and we are to be like him. We don't need any other reason to be holy other than, other than that, because God said that we should be like him. But if you're looking for some reasons, Peter gives a couple more. In 1 Peter 2 verse 12, he says we should be, he implies that we should be holy so that unbelievers would honor um, God. And even goes as far to say that we express our holiness by honoring the institutions of the world. Yes, that even means honoring the, um, the institutions at the time, the Roman Empire, that were seeking to destroy um, Christians. And um, chapter 2, verse 11, it says, avoiding passions of the flesh which war against your soul. But this passage tells us that action is required on our part we can't be passive. We need to prepare our minds and be sober-minded. We need to take it seriously. That means plan. Build it into your schedule, if need be, to build yourself up, to encourage yourself into a holy life. But moreover, remember that the grace of God is here to help us. In his other book, Peter outlines the benefits of the knowledge of God. By the way, who here knows God? Put your hand up if you know God. 
I think, yeah, it, it just goes up in the air like this. Um, well, okay, I think some people were maybe um, afraid to, um, uh, to put their hand up there. But um, isn't it good to know God? Isn't it just the best thing ever? It really is good. And if you don't know him, you can just ask us at the end and we'll, we'll sort that out this morning. But anyway, the knowledge of God has great benefits um, as you should know, um, we mentioned um, them, them earlier, but I'll just say it again to make my point. So in, um, in 2 Peter, in the first chapter, verses 3 and 4, he said that knowledge of God is key for having a godly life, for being effective and productive, and that we will um, never fall. Sorry, 2 Peter, first chapter, yes. Um, how important it is then um, to know God. But John also has something else to say. In his third book, he says that the love of God is expressed through hospitality. And he commends his reader, a man named Gaius, for doing that. Remember that we are commanded to love. Loving others is part of God's um, commandment to us. So in, in loving others, we are engaging in holy living. And holy living is not just abstinence from things. It is an action it requires us to take uh, action. He contrasts this uh, in 3 John with a man named Diotrephes who puts himself first. Not only is he an inhospitable man, but he puts people who are hospitable out of the church. Another way, another way then to recognize false shepherds and teachers. And John gives us, John gives us uh, clear teaching and an example to avoid. So we've looked at the issues that were facing the church in the first century, and we've looked at the ways that these authors help us to respond um, to those if they were to happen to us today, which they can. I'll say it again, Jesus is Lord. That statement could get you killed in Roman times. And it's not likely today that in the West we would be killed for saying that, although elsewhere in the world, maybe. Still, try saying Jesus is Lord to non-believers and watch their reaction. Chances are they won't be altogether comfortable with it. You may get insulted or derided for your faith. Or maybe by your holy living you won't need to say anything and people will spot you anyway. That should be our prayer anyway, that people will spot the way that we live. So when you do suffer, remember the encouragement of Peter, John and Jude. It is a blessing, honestly. And when you see lies in the church, false teachers, immerse yourself in the knowledge of God and be assured that the certainty of your of the, be, in, be assured of the certainty of your faith and engage in holy living by the grace of God. I encourage you now to go back to Peter, John, and Jude and to listen to their words from across the centuries. And remember that it's not just them speaking, it's the Holy Spirit who is God, who lives in you, who is speaking to you as well. I want to leave you with the words of Peter again. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen.